Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I am Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. It's Wednesday. We got another Wednesday, show. Wednesday, got another show. But the big news is we're fully swagged out. Yeah. You're not, totally. But we have new Morning Brew Daily mugs that came this morning. And I got to tell you, the coffee tastes so good coming out of them. Even better out of it. And you know what tastes even better is having everyone go and watch this podcast on YouTube so you can see the cool new swag we're wearing. Neil, you have the smiley face brew uh, sweatshirt on right now. It's one of my favorites. Yes, it is awesome. I don't know the color of this shirt because I'm sort of aesthetically illiterate. <laughs> I guess Tar Heel Blue. I like it. Yeah, North Carolina. North Carolina. Maybe not quite, but it is. Yeah. you can get it at our store. Uh, it is super comfortable. Yeah, I like it. And then I really, really like these mugs, too. A YouTuber said, hey, you guys should sit on the desk and have a little Morning Brew Daily mug. So do you have the YouTuber's name? Yeah, James Gillespie, I think. Shout out James Gillespie for recommending these these mugs to us. He's um, a YouTuber. I know. A YouTube commenter, <laughs> yes. We love our YouTube commenters. So, again, if you're only an audio person, go check us out on YouTube and, and see what we look like sitting in the studio. All right, just want to preview what we have for you today. We're going to talk some controversy over the chip money that the U.S. is handing out. Uh, there's another close call at U.S. airports between planes and finally, because everyone's talking about this, we'll talk about time zones on the moon. And by everyone's talking about it, I mean just us. Just us. But hey, we're, we're each other's uh, best friends. So yes. there we go. That's okay. all that matters. Where we're going to start is on Wall Street uh, with Goldman Sachs, where things are not looking so hot. David Solomon, who is the CEO, is in the hot seat after the company's push to court regular folks. People on Main Street has mostly flopped. There was this investor day yesterday that Goldman Sachs had, only their second ever. It was super high stakes. Uh, they wanted to hear what David Solomon had to say about the bank's performance, which has been pretty bad. And he said Goldman was considering strategic alternatives for its consumer platforms biz, and that includes things like its credit card partnerships with Apple and GM. Yeah. So, Toby, do you think this is actually a problem for David Solomon is he is he safe I think he is on the medium hot seat and the reason why is because whenever you kind of lead an initiative this was David Solomon kind of hung his hat on the consumer business and say this is where our growth is going to come from in the next few years and so whenever you do that and, and it falters a little bit of course you're going to be held liable but, I mean, Solomon does have some supporters still. A lot of people were saying that they'd rather have a CEO who actually tries something and fails than someone who just kind of sits on their laurels. So I don't think he's, like, imminently about to be fired. But, yeah, he's, his seat is warming for sure. 
Yeah, well, the bank is just not doing well in general, besides the consumer biz, because it its powerhouse, which was investment uh, banking and trading, has kind of hit the fritz. Profits have fallen for five consecutive quarters, and people are just saying that Goldman has not reinvented itself in the way other banks have in this post-2008 era, right. which is where they place a lot more regulations post-financial crisis on investment banking and trading. And so rivals like Morgan Stanley have moved into asset management and or asset and wealth management where they're talking, you know, Goldman Sachs was going after you and me, like regular folks on yeah. Main Street, and then um, Morgan Stanley was courting millionaires and saying, look, you have a, a lot of money, just invest it with us, this generates super reliable returns. Right. And that's why people are kind of mad at David Solomon, is that was Goldman's bread and butter was asset and wealth management, and now they tried to appeal to, yeah, Main Street. And those are really hard relationships to develop, because you need that layer of trust and like Chase Bank and uh, Bank of America, they had built up that kind of pedigree with uh, people who are banking with them. So it's really hard to just come in and say, hey, we have this new bank, guys, like, come trust us with your money, um, especially with, like, the reputational hit that Goldman Sachs took in 2008. So looking back now, you can kind of see why this might have been doomed to fail. Um, but yeah, we're 2020 hindsight, I guess. <laughs> it does seem weird to, to, like, go and open up a checking account with Goldman Sachs. Right. But you don't think there would be some sort of like elite status conferred on right, you if, they, if you just whip out your Goldman Sachs credit card? Yeah. Or if you're like, oh, yeah, let me just, it's a debit card, uh, but yeah, it's Goldman Sachs. I just, that's kind of my chink account. Oh, you have PNC? Well, I, I bank with Goldman Sachs. Well, that was, I think that was their problem. They named it Marcus. Like they tried to distance itself from that premium Goldman Sachs brand. But maybe if you're listening, Goldman Sachs, listen to Neil and and, and play the, uh, the status card because, yeah, it is a little bit of a thing. Definitely not so. bank strategy, but I just want to mention that Goldman is—they uh, just had the biggest, one of the biggest round of job cuts ever, which mm -hmm. is that they laid off 3,200 workers, and this consumer business uh, lost three billion since 2020. Yeah, it's, again. The seat is definitely warming for Solomon. He's only been there since 2018, I believe, which it feels like he's been there a lifetime. Um, but yeah, DJ, do you want to say the DJ? DJ Diesel. Yeah, so yeah. we didn't even touch on this, but he is a part-time DJ. <laughs> and there was this big New York Times article how they were recently saying that yeah, there might be actually some conflicts of interest between his DJ work and it's his uh, you know role as a bank CEO, um, which you know I'm obviously not an expert in that, but he definitely plays his. DJ card up a lot. Yeah. Maybe he should be focusing a little more on you know turning his business around. Yeah, we always have to mention that whenever we talk about Goldman. Okay, let's actually move on to another kind of maybe ill-fated investment decision. Um, so Altria, who makes Marlboro cigarettes, huge, huge tobacco company, is in talks to buy the e-cigarette brand Enjoy for $2.75 billion. So a couple of things that make this noteworthy. First of all, the price tag. Enjoy made around $150 million in sales last year, so that is valuing it at 18 times like trailing sales, which is just a massive valuation. And then two, this kind of marks the end of the chapter, the ill-fated chapter in Altria's history of when they acquired Juul. So I actually want to start with Juul. Do you remember how much that they paid for Juul back in the day? I remember, yeah. It was uh, well. I think they paid. They bought a thirty-five percent stake, and it was for thirty-eight. It was worth thirty-eight billion dollars. They value Jewel at thirty-eight billion dollars, and today it's worth only seven hundred million. So one of the worst acquisitions, maybe of all time. I'll never forget that valuation or talking about 
schedule because my brother's like Fidelity retirement account, we looked through the portfolio. (laughs) There was Jewel. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. It was like the weirdest thing, but Jewel was one of the top investments. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's not doing, it was $38 billion, one of the biggest startups. Right. At the time, uh, Jewel had around 63% market share of the US nicotine market. Just to put that in perspective, Enjoy currently has 2% of the market. So this is sort of seems like a super desperate move just to buy Altria just to get like a, a strength, just a f- small foothold in this market because it is a growing market. But uh, they're, you know, they're just moving on from Jewel because they're just saying this is a completely failed enterprise. Right. I think you're you're dead on uh, when you say that they know that they messed up with Jewel, but they still want a foothold in this market. And one of the main reasons why they want this foothold is because cigarette sales have continued to decline. Like This is not a new trend, but we're, we're going to toss a chart up here for our, our people watching on YouTube. But it, it's showing the quarterly year-over-year decline in cigarette sales. It's just a steady <laughs> increase down and to the right, like down the, worst, the, right. the worst kind of chart. So Altria is definitely looking at it and saying, all right, people aren't smoking anymore. They like e-cigarettes. It's been very hard to get FDA approval. That's another reason why Enjoy is such a big deal, is that the FDA signed off on it. It's not FDA approved. It's actually an interesting little nuance. It's FDA approved to be marketed to consumers. Um, So Enjoy, you can find them in, like, your local bodega, and there's there seems like there's, there's tons, tons of, of bodega selling vapes around here. Right. So it, it looks like a little bit of a desperation play from Austria, but also they do it, they needed to make a play. So I, I guess this is it. And then the final note is it's super interesting. I was reading this article about ten, trends in teen vaping, and we all heard about this epidemic that was happening mm-hmm. in 2019 and 2020. Actually, vaping has dramatically falled over the past few years. And people say it has something to do with the dynamics of the pandemic. But I pulled up some stats. But basically, teen use of electronic cigarettes was 19.6% in 2020. It went to, or no, it was 27.5 in 2019, decreased to 19.6% in 2020. And then in 2021, it was down to 11.3%. Honestly, so. I, I'm not sure I trust all of those stats. If those are teens self-reporting, uh, but yeah, no, it is interesting to see the decline. And I think part of it is Jewel was famous for making flavored pods, so you could have like mango flavored. This is how you smoke. Yeah, <laughs> mint flavored pods. Also, yeah, I know these. I just did research, mom. I don't know these flavors off the top of my head, but. And the FDA dropped the hammer on the flavored pods specifically. Um, so now you can only really get, like, menthol or tobacco-flavored. Um, so that may be some of the reason is, like, they're kind of gross now to smoke. So. Yeah. Well, maybe they are. <laughs> um, let's move on to some uh, topic that, I don't know, I freaking love this stuff. It just gets, like, I could just watch this kind of, or read this about it like I watch sports. But do you remember the CHIPS Act that created this pool of money to incentivize chip production in the United States? Yeah, I also remember it because it's a very well-named act. Like, totally good. The CHIPS Act. So, so there's been movement. So yesterday, the Commerce Department, for the first time, opened up applications to grab some of that $39 billion that has been pooled away. But how they're doing it has caused a major controversy and debate over the role of government in spurring economic development. So there are so many strings attached to getting this money. 
uh, for chip makers. So you have to provide affordable childcare for workers if you want to get your hands on this. You have to share excess profits with the government. You have to limit stock buybacks, and you can't expand—this is crucial—you can't expand in China for 10 years. So getting this money comes with a lot of red tape, and it's caused a lot of debate about, you know, what the Biden administration is doing here. Yeah. I could not believe that the first string attached was affordable child care for a CHIPS Act. Like, it really didn't compute my mind. And, I mean, we spoke about it, but if the chip work, chip plants and chip uh, manufacturers need workers, and so, like, they're trying to incentivize them to provide health care so you can bring in better workers. So I guess that makes sense. But, yeah, I could totally see how a lot of people are a little mad at this. We're at this crux moment in kind of the the future of technology in the United States, we need to ramp up chip production. We need to match, like, China's output. And yet, here are all these red, uh, like, strings attached to it. I can see why that's annoying for both the chip manufacturers and people who are not fans of big government. Right. And we should talk about that chip shortage that is that spurred the CHIPS Act to begin with. Do you remember 2020 and 2021 when they couldn't find any chips? And that sort of spurred this whole move to become more self-reliant on chips because those little things—I don't even know how small they are—they're millimeters you yeah. know, wide—kind of run our industrial right. architecture right now. All I remember from that time—so it was back in 2020, supply chains got all messed up, chips— the chip shortage was a big deal. And what I kept thinking was, how are everything running on these chips? And the biggest thing was automobiles, but also smartphones, the military. But yeah, the auto shortage was like a really, really big deal. Factories were just sitting completely idle. They had the cars like pretty much built, but they just needed the semiconductor chips. Um, and so, yeah, the stat I like to show is a Workers at a Ford Motor Factory in Michigan and Indiana worked a full week just three times in 2020 because of the chip shortage. That is not good. That is a what we like to call a supply chain bottleneck right there. <laughs> yeah. That is what we like to call. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens with this. Obviously, critics of this are saying, yo, are you trying to make chips or are you trying to slam all of your other policies into this? Yeah. And then the government is responding saying, this is what we need to do. Right. If you want, we, money, like, I'm not going to write a blank check to these massive companies. They need to, you know, put up or shut up. So, yeah. it'll be really interesting to see what plays out. I hope people got really hyped about industrial <laughs> yeah. policy. As hyped as Neil, yeah. Uh, it is no. I think it is really fascinating that affects all of us. Obviously, um, let's move on to U.S. airports. Uh, this has not happened to me recently, and not happened to most people. But there have been a lot of close calls recently. The most recent one was in Boston on Monday night when two planes nearly collided at Logan. Uh, there was a JetBlue plane, and then they're taking off, and then there was another plane <laughs> taking off at the same time. And when I say two planes are taking off at the same time on intersecting runways, usually not a good thing. Not so the FAA is looking into this. Yeah, no, not good at all. And the reason why we're kind of talking about this is that incidents like this have seemingly been increasing in the last few weeks. Like, we can rattle off a few off the top of our head. Um, we also have a chart kind of 
of how many of these instances have happened recently, we will post that on our social media, on our on our Twitter and Instagram as well. Yeah, so if you want to check out some of these visual elements, definitely go follow us on our socials at MB Daily Show. Plug aside. Plug aside. The chart shows that actually the number of serious incidents has been decreasing. So we've seen all of these headlines um, recently, which I'll get to in just a moment. But there were in 2022, there were 18 serious runway incursions in the U.S., which basically means the most serious type of incident where there could be a crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 20, 2007, there were 32. So this is a downward trend. But there's been just like a lot of headlines that makes people think there is a pattern, which right. there doesn't seem to be. It just kind of seems to be a fluke. But there was, do you remember in December, a Hawaii Airlines uh, took off at Maui, and it climbed to 1,400 feet and then plunged to nearly to below 800 feet. It makes my it makes my stomach. Drop. I took off from Maui in December oh, on a Hawaiian Airlines flight. You. Yeah. There was a close call at JFK in January between two planes that were taking off at the same time, and then probably the close call was the closest call was in Austin, where there was a FedEx cargo plane landing and a Southwest Airlines plane taking off, and they came within a hundred feet of each other. That that is really really hundred feet yeah. is absolutely nothing. Right, and I there was a quote from a national transport Transportation Safety Board official who basically said it could have been catastrophic if not for certain actions, including the actions of the FedEx crew. And it made me think of the movie Sully, which is about the pilot who landed the the plane in the in the Hudson River. And like, I'm wondering if we're gonna get a Sully-like movie for the FedEx flight of just the heroic actions taken by the one guy transporting all of our all of our goods on his plane. But yeah, I hope so because I don't know if this has reached your TikTok, but. <laughs> All I get right now is Sully, Sully clips. clips. I've been I've been just deep in Sully content. I, I put away all everything I'm doing when something comes up on TikTok about Sully. Yeah. And I just watch I've watched like the entire movie on TikTok right now. It is so engrossing. It's it, crazy. Tom Hanks just being so cool, cool as a cucumber landing this plane <laughs> right. in the Hudson. Yeah. Oh. No, it's a great. I've I'm, never seen the movie, but I feel like I know. I know. I'm glad you made it to to Sully talk. It's it's a good place to be of the internet. Okay, now I want to take us to maybe one of our my favorite stories we've ever done on the show thus far, and that is lunar time zones. So here's the debate that's that's going on right now. Uh, the European Space Agency met this week to kind of hash out a plan for establishing a universal time zone on the moon. And the reason why this is suddenly becoming kind of to the forefront of debate is that the, we have a ton of missions coming up in the next few years from all countries they're going to, we're probably going to establish a lunar base in the next kind of decade or so. So people basically need to get on the same page of what time is it on the moon, because the current way you you uh, tell time in space and on lunar missions is by you use the time zone of the country that launched the mission. So with more international cooperation, that's not going to work long term. So Neil, do you, are you excited for this, this lunar time zone that's going to be established? I mean, it, it does seem, if we look throughout history, that technological innovations sort of drive us to reconsider and reorganize the way we think about time. I mean, the first thing I thought about this was when we first established time zones in the United States and North America, which was in the 1880s when there were trains, you know, going faster than literally anything else we, we've ever conceived of yeah. in human history. So they actually had established time zones across the country to, uh, you know, make shipments and yeah. uh, passenger rail actually work on time and establish schedules. So the first thing I thought about was like, yeah, of course this we got to establish. Version of it. Yeah, yeah, this is the modern version of it. But it seems to be 
a really confusing endeavor. Let's just say I never want, I don't want to be in these meetings because my brain will just immediately turn to spaghetti. There's a lot of nuances and complexities, obviously. But clocks on the moon don't run in the same time with the Earth. They gain roughly 46, 56 microseconds per day, so they're ticking a little bit faster. On top of that, a moon day is different than an Earth day. Or a, yeah, what is it? A moon day, yeah, it's a lot different than yes. an Earth day. It's 29 and a half Earth days, actually, for one rotation of the moon to happen. Right. So, yeah. This it, is absurdly complicated, and I just want to know when the NFL games are on when I'm on the moon. I know. That's all I need. I can't wait. We have the London games right now in the NFL. I cannot wait for the lunar games to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love all the complexities of this. Um, the, it it is really important, though, because satellites also use atomic clocks to kind of pinpoint their location. So you really do have to, and we're going to have moon satellites soon. That's another thing that's mm -hmm. in the works. And so you do need, I don't know how they're going to make it work, because if a clock is running above the moon at a different time from a clock running on the moon, how do you reconcile the differences? So There might be two lunar time zones. This whole thing makes me think we're going to have to reorganize society, not just time, but in general for space. Right. We're, we're going to have to have, like, what currency am I going to use? Yeah. Uh, when I buy real estate, you know, my crater front property, like, who am I going <laughs> to buy it from? Am I going to have to pay taxes to the U.S. government? Am I going to have to pay taxes to the UAE government? Yeah. I'm just really interested to see how we are going to reorganize society, the economy, politics on the moon. And I think this time zone thing is just one part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's return to Earth for a little bit of societal debate as well. Our final story for the day is so Joe and Jill Biden went out to eat, not necessarily newsworthy in itself, but some people were kind of looking through what they ordered. Uh, I'm going to take you through their order. A couple of glasses of wine, grilled bread with cultured butter, chicory salad, and two orders of rigatoni with fennel sausage ragu. So that is what really, really tripped people up. They ordered the same entree, and it, Twitter kind of lit up with debate. Is this okay? Is this acceptable to order the same entree as the person, your significant other, that you're going out to eat with? Absolutely inexcusable <laughs> and probably disqualifying from office. <laughs> this is absolutely not okay. Yeah. I mean, so, so I'm very much against this. There are a, a couple caveats that I want to put forward. The first one is that you have to be close enough with the person. So if I'm just meeting you for the first time, then we can order the same thing because there is a oh, sort of relationship threshold where you get to talking about food choices. I don't know. I feel like if I'm meeting for somebody for the first time, that's not something we're still just asking about, right. you know, your siblings you're and all that. So you're feeling each other out. It's a little presumptuous to start, you know, doing trying to split food order to doing order management. Yeah. And then the second one is that if it is a single purpose restaurant. So there are I love these restaurants. I want to go to a restaurant that only makes one kind of thing and they're the best at the world at it. Yeah. So I'm thinking something like a ramen or I've been to some Thai places where they specialize in this broiled chicken. Yeah. I was going to say I get, there's a Cuban place near me where if you don't get the Cuban sandwich, yeah. you're like you're literally doing it wrong. So Right. Yeah. So um so those are my rules just to go full Larry David here. Um <laughs> I realize there are people that don't even share their food to begin with. At all. Emily, yeah. our producer, we were talking earlier, and she's like, well, I never share my food, so if you want some, you better order it order yourself. Order it yourself, yeah. Which is crazy to me, but... I was surprised at how... I thought, for sure, people would lean towards the, you have to order something different, because if... 
there's like rules for going out. This is a time to explore new things. So you don't want to re reduce the likelihood that you both get a, a good meal. If say you both order the same thing and it turns out to be bad, you just ruin the whole night there. So you gotta hedge your bets a little bit by like distributing the orders. But yeah, Twitter was kind of more divided than I expected where 60% of people said, yeah, this is not acceptable. But 40% were like, yeah, we do this, so I think we, we're 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 just foodies. I know. Well, I guess our, our followers are are moderate foodies. So. Moderate foodies. Okay, that's all we have for today. Awesome show, Toby. You kicked butt. Um, remember, we want to hear from you our listeners uh, and viewers, so make sure you can email us at morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com. We're on email all the time. We're Morning Brew. And weigh in, please, on the Please weigh in on this debate. debate. Tell yeah. us we're wrong. Have to give um, awesome shout-outs to our amazing crew. The show's producer and editor is Emily Milliron, who probably doesn't like me right now. Uh, the show's technical director is Elias Alba. Hair and makeup couldn't make the show because they're on Moon Time. Supervising producer is Bryce Belloff. Lord of podcast is Dan Bauza. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow.